get ready. It's time to surround yourself with some of the best attractions Central Florida has to offer. It's time for the Central Florida Sights and Sounds podcast with your hosts, John and Anne-Marie Carigliano. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 17 of the Central Florida Sights and Sounds Podcast, bringing you the sights and sounds of Central Florida's world-class attractions, and I'm your host, John Creeglano. Well, we were going to have a normal episode this week, but um, due to what I would call, uh, I think for most of us here, a very close friend that had passed away back on July 27th, um, I think it's kind of due for this show. Um, So for all of you that may or may not know, Marty Sklar uh, passed away back on July 27th, and he had been part of Imagineering, had opened up all of the Disney theme parks, including Shanghai Disneyland last year, and was well-beloved the you know by many of us Disney fans, and some of us were really lucky enough to actually get to meet him, including myself, which I'm privileged and honored to have had the chance to personally chat with him, even if it was for a short bit. Um... So one of the things that I got to actually sit and listen was uh, a very special, I guess you could call it a panel, but it was just him. Um, This was back in October 1st, 2007, which is crazy to think that we're coming up on 10 years from Epcot's 25th anniversary. And basically it was about, it was him talking about the creation and development and some of the stories around Epcot Center. And I'm so thankful I still have this recording and I probably will keep it for the rest of my life. Um, So I, I, you know, when this happened, I immediately knew what I wanted to to share to honor him and I want to share it with all of you so enjoy this wonderful talk with Marty Sklar on October 1st 2007 good afternoon yes how you guys doing all right well thank you so much for your patience my name is Lowell Durango and I'm one of the 2007 Walt Disney World ambassadors and it's a pleasure to be here with you today as we introduce a true Disney legend as we all know um, that we 
to listen to Marius Clark, but as a reminder, please, there is no videotaping, audio recording, or still photography of any kind during this presentation. Please keep that in mind uh, throughout the hour. Marius Clark began his career at Disneyland in June in 1955, and if you do the math, that's about one month prior to it opening in July of 1955. He was hired to create the Disneyland News. It was a tabloid newspaper sold on Main Street for 10 cents during Disneyland's first summer. Two weeks after he started at the age of 21, Marty had to present this newspaper concept to Walt Disney himself. And fortunately, Walt liked the concept, so that's why Marty says he's still here 52 years later. <laughs> after completing his last year at UCLA, Marty returned to Disneyland's Publicity and Public Relations Group in 1956, and he worked for the Walt Disney Company continuously since then. For 10 years until Walt Disney's passing in 1966, Marty actually wrote personal material for Walt, including messages in the annual reports and the 20-minute film that expressed Walt's vision for Walt Disney World at Epcot. Starting in 1974, 30 years, Marty served as the creative leader of Walt Disney Imagineering and as vice chairman and principal creative executive. He is the only Disney cast member to open all 11 theme parks around the world. He was also inducted. He was also inducted as a Disney legend in 2001 and has re received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Themed Entertainment Association. And this past June received the prestigious Professional Achievement Award from the UCLA Alumni Association. Marty's influence can be seen in every Disney park around the world through the careers and creative philosophies of almost every designer and showman in our industry. Again, it's my pleasure to introduce to you the Executive Vice President and Imagineering Ambassador, Mr. Marty Sklar. Thank <laughs> you. 
really uh, and really influenced us a lot when we look back at it. Uh, and shortly after we opened Walt Disney World in 1971, David Brinkley, who was then with NBC News, came to Walt Disney World, and uh, he did a, a program that was on NBC. And I'd like to show you that as we begin today. Peter Blake, the architectural editor of New York Magazine, recommends that all of New York City's town planning work be turned over to the Walt Disney Mickey Mouse organization <laughs> because they seem to be the only people in America who are able to get anything done. <laughs> When you look around at this new town they have built here in Central Florida, you will think he is right. It is the most imaginative and most effective piece of urban planning in America. And that is totally aside from the Mickey Mouse amusement park area itself. It is outside of the park on Disney's own land, which is about twice the size of Manhattan. On this, they have built roads, transportation systems, lakes, golf courses, campgrounds, riding stables, stores, hotels, and so on. And they all fit together in a setting of land, air, and water better than any other urban environment in America. We all remember seeing years ago those slick, futuristic drawings saying what the future of the American city was going to be. Gleaming buildings, fast monorails, people in one place, cars in another. Well, this is the future. And none of it has happened. Nobody has done it but Disney. While the rest of us squirm around in traffic and breathe fumes, Disney gets people out of their cars at the edge of town and then takes them quickly to wherever they want to go. It is also true that Disney does not have to deal with the city hall bureaucracy. 
all of those lumps of people shuffling paper explaining why nothing can be done until they get more tax money and when they get more tax money nothing is done then either after disney's people take over the big cities we will we'll talk about bringing them to washington <laughs> <laughs> Joe was the original can-do person. Walt would say, Joe, do you think we could do such and such? And Joe would say, can-do, Walt. And then he'd go find out if there's a way to do it. <laughs> because no one wanted to say no to Walt Disney. This is Claude Coates, who uh, laid out the Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion. Bill Cockrell again. John Hench, the greatest designer who ever worked in our business. Uh, Don Edgren, our chief engineer, and Dick again. The reason I keep telling Dick is because he was the first one who uh, ever mentioned uh, Epcot to me. And uh, I'm not sure he understood it, but he mentioned it to me. <laughs> Mark Davis, and he, these are Mark's sketches of pirates. He did all of them. Exitensio, you know, or yo ho, yo ho, pirates life for me and grim grinning ghosts. And this is one of my favorite pictures for a good reason, I think. This is October 1967. We had cleared 100 acres where we were going to build the Magic Kingdom. And we put a big yellow X to mark the center of the castle. <laughs> Pretty interesting picture, eh? And here's Dick. Irvine carrying uh, a version of the master plan that we were studying as we looked at the property. Welton Beckett, whose firm designed the contemporary and the Polynesian resorts, and a much thinner Marty. <laughs> 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 this is Card Walker, and I'll tell, explain that when I'm showing Card in a minute, but he was the head of marketing, and later he's the one who signed the Epcot dedication plaque when he was CEO of the company. And here's uh, Roy O. Disney behind Walt, Walt studying some plans. Mm -hmm. Looks like uh, 
difficult property to do work in, right? <laughs> was a lot of it very well. This is the groundbreaking for Epcot. Four governors of Florida, Claude Kirk, Ruben Askew, Bob Graham, Hayden Burns. Hayden Burns was the governor when we announced Walt Disney World in 1965. And in the middle, Card Walker. And uh, Card, as the head of marketing, called me one day and uh, he said, take notes, and started rattling off for maybe five minutes, all kinds of stuff. And uh, at the end, he said, now, write that up as a one-page treatment, and we'll take it to Walt. So I did, and I sent it to Card, and he said, this is great, just perfect, take it to Walt. We took it to Walt, and he read it while we were there, and he said, this is really well written, but uh, what's it about? <laughs> And that's when I discovered that the second person who talked to me about Epcot didn't know what it was either. <laughs> but the good news was that uh, because uh, Walt liked what I had written, I got a chance to write the Epcot film uh, for him. And one of the first things we did after Walt passed away was to uh, put together, at Dick Irvine's request, I put together this book background and philosophy because we wanted to get everybody on the same page about the design and creation of the Walt Disney World project. This was about 40 pages and I'd add to it from time to time. But here's the introduction. September 1967, the intent, provide a foundation for Walt's thinking and philosophy about Disneyland and additional thoughts about Walt Disney World. And he would, from time to time, he would give me little notes. Now, Walt was kind of a pixie about certain things. He really delighted in, in, in dropping little tidbits to media piece of people or something like that uh, long before announcements were made. And this is how one of the earliest things he did before we announced what we were going to do in Florida. And this reporter got it. And so Walt handed it to me and said, here, she, had, she really understood what I was talking about. Uh, another instance, of course, is uh, about two months before we announced Walt Disney World, Walt wanted to take another look at the property, so they came down here, and by then people were suspecting that maybe Disney was buying all this land. So Walt was told, now, we've given you an alias to sign in a hotel, and don't let anybody know that you are Walt Disney. So they went to dinner one night, and the waitress kept eyeing Walt, Finally, she walked over and she said, you know, you look like Walt Disney. And he said, what do you mean look like Walt Disney? I am Walt. Then <laughs> 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 there's a six pages of my notes from uh, meetings with Walt where he talks about things like, he really kept emphasizing, meet the needs of people. These are notes that really were helpful to me because he laid out what he wanted to accomplish with the film. And as I say, there's about six pages of these notes that pretty much define what I tried to write in the film. This is really rare because Walt didn't do it with very many sketches. Um, and this one is a master plan for Walt Disney World. Here's I-4, here's and here's the, the North-South Road coming up to the Weenie, the parks, 
show you this when the engineers and architects got to doing the master plan and following exactly what Walt had laid out. Uh, one thing to notice is the center of Epcot in this uh, scheme is about where we built Epcot. And then, this is a really great day for me, I spent a, a full day on the set of the studio uh, while we were shooting only seven, uh, seven or eight minutes of, of uh, film that Walt is in, but it took all day to do it. We brought everything that we had of engineering to a soundstage at the studio where this was shot. Uh, this is one of my favorite lines. Unfortunately, I didn't write it, it was Walt's. He says, according to this scale, I am six miles tall. <laughs> <laughs> and he liked me so much, you know, he really liked me. <laughs> and this is where he's explaining uh, some of the transportation schemes, the center of the city, etc. And then he asked me to write two endings for this film. One was directed to the people in Florida because we were trying to get some legislation passed that established the Reedy Creek Improvement District, district which really is the governing body for this property. And the other is, uh, was for industries because he kept saying no one company can do this by itself. So here are those two endings. That's the starting point for our experimental prototype community of tomorrow. You can see that Disney World is not a land development promotion in any way. We may not use all 43 square miles, but to accomplish our goals for Disney World, we must retain control and develop all the land ourselves. And now, where do we go from these preliminary plans and sketches? Well, a project like this is so vast in scope that it will take the cooperation of many people to make it a reality. You people here in Florida have one of the key roles to play in making Epcot come to life. In fact, it's really up to you whether this project gets off the ground at all. We must have flexibility in Disney World to keep in pace with tomorrow's world. We must have the freedom to work in cooperation with American industry and to make decisions based on standards of performance. If we have this kind of freedom, I'm confident we can create a world showcase for American free enterprise that will bring new industry to the state of Florida from all over the country. I believe we can build a community here that more people will talk about and come to look at than any other area in the world. I'm sure this experimental prototype community of tomorrow can influence the future of city living for generations to come. It's an exciting challenge. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. Speaking for myself and the entire Disney organization, we're ready to go right now. That's the starting point for our experimental prototype community in tomorrow. And now, where do we go from these preliminary plans and sketches? Well, a project like this is so vast in scope that no one company alone can make it a reality. But if we can bring together the technical know-how of American industry and the creative imagination of the Disney organization, I'm confident we can create right here in Disney World a showcase to the world 
of the American free enterprise system. I believe we can build a community that more people will talk about and come to look at than any other area in the world. And with your cooperation, I'm sure this experimental prototype community of tomorrow can influence the future of city living for generations to come. It's an exciting challenge. A once in a lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. Speaking for myself and the entire Disney organization, we're ready to go right now. <laughs> the uh, one of the first things we did, and this was in the year after Walt died, we had to create the building code for this property. It was called the Epcot Building Code, and uh, I got to write the preface for this. I'm not an engineer, I'm a story person, writer, but we wanted to express what Walt was trying to do there provide the flexibility to encourage American industry to introduce, test, and demonstrate new ideas, materials, and systems emerging now in the future from the creative centers of industry to provide an environment that will stimulate the best thinking of industry and the professions in the creative development of new technologies to meet the needs of people, there's that phrase, meet the needs of people, expressed by the experience of those who live work and visit here. Now, the first thing that we really had to do was establish Walt Disney World because no one came to Orlando for their vacation in the late 60s. And uh, as a matter of fact, that 1967 visit down here when that photo was taken, I showed before, the yellow X, there were four airlines and seven flights a day out of McCoy Field. I have the statistics uh, these days, I think there's something like 95,000 people a day that come into that airport today. <clears throat> so, uh, Walt Disney World finally, by the mid-70s, uh, was well established. Uh, we had opened Space Mountain in uh, January 1975 and the Carousel Progress, and this place was going very well. That's when Card Walker came to me and said, what do we do about Epcot? And uh, so, the first thing we did was we put together a series of forums, which we called the Epcot Forums. This was about communications, looking to the future, and uh, what we, and also, I'll show you the next one. Oops, sorry. We called them future technology conferences. This was about agriculture, food, and energy. We invited people from industry, from universities from government and consultants, uh, people who were doing special work in various fields around, around the world. And these were really terrific because they gave us a, a background and an understanding of things that we wanted to talk about. And we had Ray Bradbury as a keynote speaker for one. I love this, invest your imagination, dream the future, and dare to try it. That's Ray. And here's one of the forms. This is our vice chairman, Don Tatum, Gordon Cooper, the astronaut. These were all held at the Contemporary Resort. And as you can see here, we had some of the beginning art as we were starting to develop the project. And Marty still thin in those days. Had, <laughs> had to uh, 
trying to explain what we were doing. And <clears throat> frankly, we didn't know enough at that time to do more than make a lot of circles and squares. <laughs> so we really started talking to people like Ray Bradbury who developed the concept for Spaceship Earth and the communication story we were telling there. And uh, these amoeba-like plans that we started to have, and here's John Hinch again, and Marty's still here. And <laughs> John DeCure, he's an architect, and we really wanted to get his father on our team because John DeCure Sr. was the greatest art director in the history of motion pictures. Hello Dolly, Cleopatra, South Pacific, just a few little pictures. <laughs> and he did some work with us. And uh, we, we started out trying to make two parts uh, and uh, quickly discovered that we couldn't sell enough sponsorship to make two parts. So one day, just before our board of directors meeting, John Hinch and I pushed the models together and it became what it is today, uh, Future World and World Showcase of budding each other. And uh, this was really important because it gave us a chance to have enough outside uh, sponsorship so we could afford to do all the things that we wanted to do initially. And here's the sponsors that we had at the beginning. Spaceship Earth, AT&T, Energy, Exxon, World of Motion, General Motors, The Land, this is before we did Test Track, The Land, Kraft, before Nestle bought them, Journey into Imagination, Kodak, American Adventure, American Express, and Coke. And then a year after we opened, Horizons, General Electric, The Living Seas, United Technologies, Wonders of Life, MetLife. Now there were really some interesting challenges working with companies to accomplish this. I'll give you one example. Exxon, 
It took us 39 scripts before we could uh, agree on what the show should be with Exxon and protect our, our guests from some of the things Exxon wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things we did was to set up advisory uh, committees. There was one that I, I, that, uh, I enjoyed listening to the dialogue. Do you remember, uh, this is some years ago now, probably 20 years ago, they found these deep heat vents at the bottom of the ocean, a depth that they had never been to before with probes, and uh, they found life at the bottom of the ocean. And uh, one of our advisors on the, on the Living Seas Pavilion was Bob Ballard, the ocean scientist from Woods Hole who found the Titanic. And uh, another one was Dr. Um, Mel Grover, the publisher of National Geographic. And one day we had an advisory board meeting and I happened to be in where, standing where uh, Bob Ballard said to uh, Dr. Grover, he said, you, you know that now that we've found these heat vents at the bottom of the ocean, everything you've ever published in National Geographic about the bottom of the ocean is wrong. It was an interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that, that uh, oh, probably the most interesting uh, chief executive we worked with was Harry Gray from United Technologies. He was a, everything went through Harry and his company. And uh, one day we got a call. Harry wanted to talk about the what the exterior of the pavilion would be painted. He wanted it as bright white said, uh, you know, blind people are required to some reflection off a bright white surface. And he wouldn't have it any other way. So we had to set up these panels that are about three quarters of the size of this and about the size of the screen. We did about six of them while the pavilion was under construction. And we did this as a test and put different colors on it. And we walked out to look at it. And John Hinn said to uh, Mr. Gray, he said, uh, you know, I, in a Disney parks, I use 34 shades of white. Which would you prefer? <laughs> and at that point, Mrs. Gray, who was with us, she grabbed my elbow and she says, why are you asking Harry about color? You know, he's colorblind. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to pick out his ties now. <laughs> yes. Uh. Well, one of the things we told these companies is that, um, if they just put their name on the door, they're not getting full value. So uh, Exxon really took advantage of that. We created a comic book with them called Vicky and Goofy Explore Energy. And it instantly became the, the largest distributed comic book in the history of comic books, 10 million copies to schools around the country. And then we did a second one with them, and it uh, beat that with 12 million distributions. This was uh, our war room. This has a very high ceiling, yeah. and we can put up all the big plans, and we're working on different visualizations. Here's John Hinch and Bill Martin. Bill really did the Italy Pavilion here, and really was responsible for a lot of the Magic Kingdom here. This is John Tatum, Carl Walker, Marty's still pointing. <laughs> and uh, if you enjoy the Disney hotels and the architects around the world, this is Wayne Chow, who's now responsible for working with all those architects. Thank, thank goodness he didn't fall off the ladder again. <laughs> <laughs> this was really the 
patrons that was created. Harper got who designed for the movie uh, the Nautilus submarine and the interior of the Nautilus, and then uh, designed a jungle cruise in Disneyland. We got Harper to come back to Disney. He'd left a number of years before. And we were kind of, uh, we were struggling with what the World Showcase would be like when Harper did this sketch. And what it showed us was we could put the iconic architecture of these different countries against each other, right next to each other. And also, if we needed to, we could put a building behind that we could hide, and as we did in Japan, for example, where we could try to get exhibits from the country, from the industry in the country. And one of the problems in, uh, we had from the beginning with the World Showcase, there's an organization in the world called the Bureau of International Expositions, and uh, it's called the BIE. And the rules of the BIE is no signatory country and all the major countries are signatories uh, to it, can participate in a permanent exhibit. They can only go into a fair, a world's fair, or a world exposition for six months. Well, that uh, impacted us. We can only go for sponsorship, not of the country, but from industry, except for the king of Morocco, who said, the BIA, <laughs> <laughs> But that was an <laughs> this was just after we started clearing the land. And one of the things, since we had, uh, we weren't allowed to do enough soil boring early on, spend the money to do it before the company committed to do the project. Uh, and once we really did start doing the soil borings, we discovered a huge sinkhole right here. Oh. Found the bottom. But that made us elongate this 
passageway for the future world to world showcase because we couldn't build on any of this land. And the one monorail pylon that's in the middle of that, I think it's as they used to say, it went to China by the time <laughs> they hit uh, rock, uh, hung something hard enough to hold it. Not too long before opening. A lot of finger pointing. <laughs>
And uh, Paul was getting on in age, and he wanted to make sure his collection ended up somewhere important. The Metropolitan Museum in New York wanted it, the Smithsonian wanted it, but he wanted, he wanted it in Epcot. Unfortunately, we were never able to build a pavilion, but we did design an exhibit for it, and ultimately, Michael Eisner, rightly so, was one of the last things he did as uh, CEO of Disney, donated this entire collection to the Smithsonian in Washington, and it's now the key collection at the Smithsonian <coughs> National Museum of African Art, and uh, believe me, it's a beautiful, and much of it's on display already. Oh. <laughs> Actually, Harper Goff designed this pavilion, and Carl Bunger, who was our president, Jack Linkless, who was the head of marketing, took it to Tehran, and they were there two weeks waiting to present it to the Shah, and they did, and he loved it, and two weeks later, the Shah was overthrown, <laughs> and so was our pavilion. <laughs> Denmark. We did a whole bunch of schemes for Denmark. That's uh, a, a little village, a skating rink, a oh. water ride, a garden and a water ride, and then the American Adventure. John Hinch and I were very enamored with the art, uh, with the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington. The beautiful thing about this is this is art design, not the Hirshhorn, but it's the same idea. And the Hirshhorn, you walk underneath it and enter from the center, and you can walk right through all over this. So our uh, concept was to put the American Adventure right here, and as you came through, you would go under the American Adventure Pavilion, the show would be above it, and basically America opening its arms to the rest of the world. Beautiful concept, right? Well, Dick Nunes, who is in charge of our operations here, said, if you put this here, the weenie, as Walt used to call it, people, we won't get all the people that should go all the way around here. It belongs over here from an operating standpoint. And he was right. And so it ended up where it is. Space pavilion. Well, we did a number of these concepts. Tim Delaney did this and this one. And Spaceship Earth, this was a real challenge. This is what the engineers wanted to do. And we wanted a, a sphere to say, you know, the world. And uh, the engineers couldn't figure it out. So one day, John Hinch came in and he said, I'm going to tell you how we're going to do this to the engineers. And here's what he brought. He says, what we're going to do is we're going to build a platform at this level. These legs will hold it up. And he said, on top of that, we will build this part of the sphere sitting on this platform. And underneath the platform will hang this part. Now, get away from this 10, you know, 100 feet, and it reads as a full sphere, but it's actually two separate structures. And that's the way it was. And the only problem next was that it took the engineers three weeks to come back and say, yeah, this will work. <laughs> They were a little embarrassed that they couldn't figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> and here's John with his baby. Big baby. <laughs> when we started on uh, the shows for Epcot, um, I asked Randy Bryce to take the lead in it. 
And the first thing Randy said to me is, do I have to use the filmmakers that are at the Disney studio? This was in the late 70s now. Because all the people that Walt had brought in to do films for the parks, they were all retired. And the studio hadn't replaced them with people that were really, really good. So I said, Randy, you can use anybody you want in the world. And we did. We used great filmmakers for uh, every one of our projects. And uh, there's a, we also had a lot of young people who cut their eye teeth on this, including Tom Fitzgerald, who was, for the last 10 years, has been really responsible for uh, most of the stories that are done in our park. Uh, Mickey's Film of Magic and on and on. And uh, Tom, this was the first project. Tom had that dark hair, and I recently took this picture to him, and now he has snow white hair. <laughs> and I said to uh, Tom, here's the, the picture I forgot you of you, the color of your hair at that time. And he pointed to his snow white head and he said, yeah, you did this too. <laughs> <laughs> this was our crew in China. One of the issues in ch shooting the China film was that uh, the Chinese government, first of all, this is 1981, 82, and uh, we were one of the first, if not the first film crew that was allowed to go all over China. Uh, and uh, the, the caveat was, that they wouldn't let us shoot the aerials. They uh, insisted that their film crews had to shoot all the aerials and our, our uh, crew would tell them what they wanted. Uh, but the and then the Chinese had to see, the government had to see the film before they, uh, we were allowed to use it. So obviously they didn't want to show any of the military installations. And these are beautiful films, the film in China, and the new one, I hope you've seen in Canada with Martin Short, I think it's a lot of fun. And some of our uh, uh, best and brightest talent performed in these shows. <coughs> Johnny Olson, who's the greatest rock work person in the world, uh, he was a Civil War soldier. And anybody recognize this? This is the Frontier train station in Disneyland that we converted to live at the Civil War train station. And Jack Burke, another one of our Imagineers. And the book that uh, we uh, created at the opening of Epcot Center. And uh, about a few years ago, the Disney Channel did about a 25-minute film. And I want to show you about a seven-minute excerpt of it because it really explains very well how we approach telling the stories in Epcot. So, uh, if you would run the film. In creating these various experience, experiences for guests, I like to use the metaphor of a, a blank piece of paper. And there, there are two ways to look at a blank piece of paper. Uh, on the one hand, it can be the most frightening thing in the world because nobody has put anything on. On the other hand, it can be the most exciting and challenging thing in the world and the greatest opportunity in the world because no one has put anything on it. You can let your imagination fly in any direction. You can create whole new worlds. Levcott really evolved out of uh, Walt's uh, thinking because he had the, the idea of uh, uh, doing something which he called experimental prototype community. 
American Adventure was a show that was conceived from the earliest phases of Epcot Center as a mainstay in the project. Uh, the only problem was we didn't realize how difficult it would be to achieve. It's easy to pontificate and say in a, in a quick line or two that it's going to be an inspiring show about America. That's the easy part. Now, how you achieve that and get down in the trenches and make it occur, uh, not only wasn't easy, it was a nightmare. I think one of the toughest things we had to do was try to take 350 years and compress it down to 20 minutes. In fact, we failed. It's a 28-minute show. I must confess that we went through six abject failures before we got to an American adventure that we all felt comfortable with, which ultimately became what we have today. And as we carefully weeded out where we went down the wrong path, we said, should not be a ride-through because you really can't tell important information in a linear fashion that makes sense of what the ride-through. So basically, we began to develop a show that for the most part began not with a concept, but with an idea. And we said before we even got down to the content, how do we keep this theater alive and moving and full of theatrical surprises for the public? So each thing that occurred tops the last thing that occurred in terms of a method of presentation. Once we got that magic theater down on how we move figures around and have film and mid-ground dimensional sets and background rear projected scenes all working in unison, now we'll deal with what the story is. So in this case, unlike many pavilions, we decided to create the magic theater to begin with. And then we sat back and said, okay, out of this magic theater now, we'll begin to fashion the story of the fourth century American experience. And that was the beginning. We chose a style of writing that used the actual words of famous people that really didn't focus on any one individual, instead we focused on a lot of people. This style was established right at the top of the show by our two hosts, Ben Franklin and Mark Twain. I think one of the most difficult tasks that we faced was actually selecting the characters. But after considerable debate, we finally agreed on two main hosts, Ben Franklin and Mark Twain. We chose Ben Franklin because we didn't think anybody could be a more lucid spokesperson for the Revolutionary War period of time than the great father of everything from wit to invention to articulation of the American experience. We thought we could bring humor into this. I mean, Ben Franklin had it all wrapped up. The best spokesman for the 19th century, uh, we looked at a number of people, but ultimately said, well, the one that seems to be enduring was certainly Mark Twain. I can't tell you what we went through with the 20th century, and we said, okay, who's going to be the spokesperson for the 20th century? And in the earlier phases, somebody said, Will Rogers, of course. Well, we took that idea to a college class back east to, I think, about 150 students of political science, about five of whom knew who Will Rogers was, sadly enough. So we learned something there that uh, we better bring somebody more contemporary into that role if we're going to have somebody speak to the 20th century. The closer we got to today, the more controversial things become. Everybody had their idea who that person should be. And we probably went through 300 names, not one of which could you get five people on our table to agree on as the spokesperson for the 20th century. We're just too close to that period of time. Now, if you got in a, a time capsule and you flashed forward to the, uh, about 100 years from now, I think historians would be able to give us a figure to come back and put on that statue. It started in a very sim simple way, a script, an initial script, an, an initial series of ideas that, as they were being worked on, were visualized. And in some cases, those visualizations took the form 
like this one. This being the first scene from the American Adventure with Mark Twain and Ben Franklin. The American Adventure represents a number of firsts for us. This is really the first play that we've produced in the theme parks, and it is certainly the first play ever produced that starred audio animatronic figures. We have a projection screen behind the uh, various animated figures and set pieces that come up during the show into view that is a 72 foot wide picture. And that 72 foot wide picture plays for the majority of the show and then finally widens to 150 feet of a continuous projection surface. Uh, that is probably the largest uh, projection screen that's ever been constructed in the world. What we have done with the use of three-dimensional scenery and the creative use of the multi-plane film technique has never been done before. It is a film show that three-dimensional images keep falling out of. The set pieces are interlocked, synchronized with the movement of the camera on the projected background, and the whole thing works in perfect unison. It actually seems as if you were looking at a movie and craning right down into the scene when suddenly the set is right before you and all of that three-dimensionality has just literally leaped off the screen and onto the stage. Disney's attention to detail is certainly one of the important aspects of whatever we do. In the case of the American Adventure, everything from the bricks uh, on the facade that were special-made bricks coming in from Georgia to the tiles along the roof, which are not made of plastic, but are actual uh, slate tile. The amount of architectural sculpting work that went into this entire facade and interior to create the, the total look of this place was an extraordinary effort to bring all of that together. The events that are low always lead to events that are high at that point in time. So people shouldn't wallow in self-pity about any challenges facing them today. That's, that's the underlying score of what we're trying to say. It's happened for the fourth century American experience. The other thing that I wanted to do with uh, in Crowd Center was I look back at, at uh, a lot of things that we've done in the 60s. There was a period from about 1963 to 1969 where we did a lot of uh, songs that helped tell the story in the tiki 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 room. <laughs> and then, of course, the, the Bob and Dick Sherman wrote that, and they wrote, uh, It's a Small World, and they might want to come up and sing it for us. I'm sure every one of you could mouth the words. By the way, I think it's, uh, uh, I'm really proud of that, because when you think that uh, it says, there's just one moon and one golden sun, and a smile means friendship to everyone, wouldn't it be great if everybody were treated everybody like that? What a great world. Yo ho, yo ho, pirates like the man, grim grinning ghost. But for some reason, after that, we stopped doing it. So one of the things I wanted to do in uh, Epcot when we opened was to go back to telling uh, story songs. And this is a medley that uh, we uh, of songs that we did when we opened Epcot Center.
<laughs> 15 images in that Google Dream section. It's very emotional, very emotional. And the other thing I want to do was uh, this logo. Uh, when I came down here the other day, somebody gave me a copy of a memo that I had totally forgotten about that I wrote in 1982 explaining the Epcot Center logo, so I'd like to read it to you. The Epcot Center logo symbolizes unity, fellowship, and harmony around the world. Five outer rings, rings are linked 
to form the shape of a flower, a celebration of life. The heart of the logo is the earth, embraced by a star symbolizing hope. The hope that with imagination, commitment, and dedication, we can create a better tomorrow. Thank you so much. show and hopefully you learned something about Epcot Center that you maybe didn't know um again really fantastic man uh, and I have to say one of my favorite stories we we were in a small group of one of my friends Jackie and some other friends we were outside between the universe of energy and the former wonders of life pavilion and happened to spot Marty but he passed by and I kind of did a double take and I'm like I'm thinking to myself I think that's Marty Slar that just passed us and sensing the fact that this might have been or maybe be my only time to get to meet him which it ended up being yes um, I called out I said Marty and he responded and we all kind of like swarmed him and we were you know, asking questions, and one of, one of the things that I remember very fondly was I asked him, at, you know, back, obviously back in 2007, I asked him, what would have Walt thought of Epcot? And without missing a beat, he says, what took you so long? <laughs> so, that's one of my favorite memories. Marty, we will certainly miss you every single day. You've certainly... Uh, inspired a lot of us out there to just, you know, do what you love. And I'll tell you what, for everyone that's out there, if you enjoy the parks, you can thank Marty for that. So on next week's show, we'll be having some other stuff planned. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, hopefully this was a nice little kind of like Wayback Machine for you, and uh, kind of uh, hear from a very influential man who really shaped the way we enjoy the parks. So, from myself, so long and have a magical week, everybody. Goodbye, Marty. Family. Family means nobody, nobody gets left behind or forgotten. <laughs> <laughs>